Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, a big thanks to the worship team for, for leading us this morning in, in worship. And um, hey, I'm Ben, if I haven't met you before, and I'm the pastor who has the privilege of working with the youth and the young adults here at Summit Drive, and such a joy to be able to share this message uh, with all of you now this morning. The 20th century philosopher John Dewey wrote the following, the world is a scene of risk. It is uncertain, unstable, uncannily unstable. Its dangers are irregular, inconstant, not to be counted upon as to their times and seasons. Although persistent, they are sporadic, episodic. It is darkest just before the dawn. Pride goes before a fall. The moment of greatest prosperity is the moment most charged with ill omen, most opportune for the evil eye. Plague, famine, failure of crops, disease, death, defeat in battle are always just around the corner. And so are abundance, strength, victory, festival, and song. Now, whatever you think of the tradition of American pragmatist philosophy, and don't worry, we're not going to keep getting into that this morning, perhaps you can resonate with this idea that the world feels a little bit chaotic. It feels unstable. The world feels a bit, maybe even out of control at times. And in the middle of that chaos... We all kind of want to control our environment now, don't we? We try to control the chaos through technology, through science, maybe through getting the right person voted into office. We manipulate others to get our way at times. We seek to manage our perceptions in, in our interactions with others, all to try to mitigate the chaos or perhaps to grasp for control of the chaos according to our will. In our secular age, as philosopher Charles Taylor calls it, most people are not atheists. Most people still believe in God or gods, or at least that there's like some sort of higher power out there. See, there's still this high value placed on spirituality, even in our culture today. But it's a spirituality of our own making, a spirituality of our own design. So at a personal worldview level, secular doesn't mean a complete rejection of the idea of God or gods or, or spiritual forces. What it does mean, though, is that no one has a claim on my life. It's a rejection of the idea that there is someone in charge of the world, or of, or of me. Whoever God is, God is not the one in charge. I'm the one in charge. That's what people tend to think in our culture today and in our world today. But would a God of my own making that I generate according to my own wishes, could that even really be the true God? I realize that it might sound kind of odd to say this today, but the Christian understanding is that there is someone else who is in control. There's someone else who is in charge of everything. And since someone else is in charge, 
we aren't. More, it would be out of sync with reality to even try to be. Hey, if you're joining us this morning, uh, maybe you're newer to our, to our community here, we're right now in the middle of this series called Come and See, Encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of John. And through this series, we've been looking at a number of different interactions that people have with this person of Jesus throughout the, the Gospel of John, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, which we find in the New Testament. And in this series, uh, we've been discovering that Jesus answers our biggest questions. He reveals our deepest longings and ultimately meets our greatest needs. And hey, if you've brought your Bible with you this morning, if you want to open it up at this time, we're going to be in John chapter 18, looking at verses 1 to 14 this morning. Uh, That's where we're going. And let's just pray before we dive into the text. Father God, we thank you so much that by your spirit, Father, you inspired this text to be written. And we pray that now you would give us an openness to what you want to speak to us through this text today, Father, and help us to see how this text reveals your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So John 18, verses 1 to 14 When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Anas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all the people. Well, I want you to imagine for a second that you were someone living in the first century, and you were someone who had heard a few things about this guy named Jesus. 
you heard that he had healed some people. He had worked some really, really amazing miracles. You heard that he had taught some really phenomenal stuff. And now you hear that he's been arrested. And soon he would be put to death. You might feel like this is one great tragedy. Or more than that, you might think that there are obviously powers at work in the world that are far more powerful than this person Jesus, right? In verse 3 of our text, we see that Judas, one of the people that was in Jesus' inner circle, had betrayed him, and, 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 this, and then he now leads this band of people to come and arrest Jesus. Judas knew where Jesus was, and as this detachment of soldiers, along with the officials from the Jewish religious leaders, come together, they do so as this powerful force, ready to remove Jesus, ready to, to take him to be killed. Now, question, why would anyone want to kill Jesus? Why would anyone want to kill Jesus? It's a legitimate question to ask, I think. You know, for me, as I enter into conversations with people who are new to Christianity and the Bible, this is one of those questions that often comes up. Because from the perspective of most people in our culture today, Jesus was a good guy who taught us to turn the other cheek, to love and and accept others. So the cross is a strange fit within the story of his life. But when we understand the context here, starts to make a little more sense. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they are the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and to them, Jesus is not just a good guy who is teaching some nice things. In John chapter 11, right after Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, which is the story that we looked at last week, Right after that happens, we see that a plot begins to take shape for Jesus to be snuffed out. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's what the chief priests and the Pharisees say. The fear is that if more people can continue to believe in this person, Jesus, the Jewish people, who are this minority group living uh, within the Roman Empire, the, the fear is that they will lose their distinctiveness and maybe even have everything taken away from them. So why did they want to kill Jesus? Control. They want to preserve the system. They want to protect their nation. And their thought, this is the way to do it. See, Jesus threatens to disrupt their religious system. And you know what? We might also fail to respond rightly to Jesus today because he threatens to disrupt us and our lives too. As much as these religious leaders in the text might seem far removed from us today, maybe there are areas of our lives where we also want to preserve things as they are. We want to continue in a relationship, even though we know that it's not God's best for us. We, we decide that we'll allow Jesus into some parts of our lives, but 
not into every part of our lives, because if we did that, it would just seem a little too extreme or a little too difficult. Yes, Jesus is a disruptive figure who shows up and shakes things up sometimes. From one angle, from one angle, it seems like the religious leaders and others involved in this event that we're focusing in on this morning get what they were hoping for. Sure enough, as we heard at the end of the passage, Jesus does get arrested and taken away. It would seem that what the religious leaders and others involved in this want is coming to fruition. It would seem that they have the power to determine Jesus' fate. It really does look like they are the ones in charge. They are the ones in control of this situation. But as we've seen in the Gospel of John so far, what if Jesus is not merely a man? What if he's not merely a religious teacher? As we focus in on this interaction with Jesus in the text, starting at verse 4, we read, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus knows exactly what's coming. There are no surprises here to him. Earlier in this gospel, in John chapter 2, the writer tells us that Jesus did not need any testimony about humanity, for he knew what was in each person. Yes, he knew what was going on in the hearts and minds of the people he interacted with. And now the writer tells us that Jesus knows the future. He knows all that was going to happen to him. And so in John's telling of the story, Jesus doesn't seem too shaken up in this scene. As a matter of fact, he's the one who steps out and initiates the whole conversation that takes place here. And he asks that question, who is it you want? Now, let me ask a question. How could have Jesus known the future? How could have he possibly known the future? I mean, last I checked, most people, even like the stock market experts, can't foresee the future, right? So how does Jesus know the future? Well, we, we read on. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here, we get a glimpse at Jesus' identity. And as we do, it'll start to make a little more sense why nothing takes him by surprise, how he can know the future. In response to their, their request for, for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus responds, I am he. And he'll say this again, uh, just, just a couple verses after this in the text as well. I am he. At one level, we have this bold act of Jesus identifying himself as the one they are looking for. Jesus isn't shrinking back here. He he flat out identifies himself like, hey, you're looking for, okay, it's me you want. I'm right here. But there's probably more going on here too. See, the NIV translates Jesus' response, I am he. But in the Greek text, Jesus says, the words are, ego, me." A phrase that could also be simply translated, I am. For those 
who know the Hebrew Bible and the central act of God's self-revelation in the book of Exodus, and that would certainly include people among those who are here ready to arrest Jesus, we hear an echo of what God says of himself to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, we read that God tells Moses, don't come any closer, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And when Moses asks, what is your name? What is your name? We are given this mysterious phrase, I am who I am. God says, tell the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And now what does Jesus say? I am. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this in the Gospel of John. Uh, You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Ricky was preaching from John chapter 8, where we saw perhaps the clearest statement in the whole entire Bible where, where Jesus himself declares that he is God. We read, him, we read, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, ego, a me. Now, words and phrases always have meaning in context, and some commentators suggest that uh, this is merely Jesus identifying himself in this text here. Uh, like, if you ask me after the service today, are, are, are you Ben? And I said, I am. But Jewish stories are multi-layered. There's often more than just one thing going on at a time. And context also gives us something else here. Like, what is the result of Jesus saying these words? They drew back and fell to the ground. This, I think, indicates that there is something more going on here than Jesus simply saying, I'm Jesus, it's me you want. In the Bible, we see many examples where people fall down in reverence and awe before the Lord. And that might be what's going on here in this this passage. But more likely, it's probably something about the reality of God's presence in their midst that knocks them down. Those who've come to arrest Jesus think that they are in charge But it's like Jesus pulls back the veil for a moment and reveals the glory of his true identity, if we have eyes to see it. The certain ground that this mob believes they are standing on, well, it's shaken, and they are left reeling. But notice, too, they don't change their course at this point. They've already made up their minds, so to speak, about what they are going to do with Jesus. And I think that brings up an important point for us, too. You know, there can be ample evidence for us to see that Jesus is the one true God who has come to meet us, to forgive us, to enable real life. But if we have chosen that we'll we'll reject his authority, we can find ourselves in the shoes of those religious leaders Blind to all the hints. Here's the irony in the story. that The people who uphold the religious system centered on the one true God are now here to arrest that very same God as he stands right in front of them. So if we ask, who's really in charge? Who's really in charge right here? It should be obvious that Jesus, in the midst of what looks like a chaotic moment, 
has his hands firmly on the wheel. Yes, he is totally in charge. Now, just a little sidebar here. Um, you know, the Bible teaches us that, that God is in charge, uh, that God is in, in control. But Christian people have some different views about exactly how that works in terms of, like, God's sovereignty and how that works uh, alongside of our own free will. You know, some would say that God really is in control of, like, every single little thing that happens in history. Like, he predestines it, and, and he controls every single little thing. Uh, others would say that God is ultimately working out everything toward a good end, a new, restored creation, a, a new creation that he has promised. But some would say that humans have real choices that shape how history unfolds as well. But when we say that God is in charge, or when we say that, that Jesus is in charge, at least as I've thought through this, I think that we can say at least, at least two things about what this means. First, Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows the future. I think that's what this text is telling us. And so nothing comes as a, as a surprise to him. And second, nothing happens without his permission. He is the sovereign king of the universe who ultimately calls the shots. Jesus is in charge. Now, as I say that Jesus is in charge, though, uh, you know, I recognize that in our world, the people who are in charge aren't always the people who treat others the best. You know, in, in our culture today, power is often viewed as a negative thing, maybe even like a borderline evil thing to have. And so it's worth paying attention to what Jesus does next in the scene as the one in charge. Picking up this interaction at verse 7, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men, let my followers, let my disciples go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. If this mob has come to arrest Jesus, it would seem that the people who are most closely associated with Jesus might be in trouble too. But Jesus uses the few words that he has the opportunity to say in this context to prioritize looking out for his disciples. Jesus has their back. And he has your back too. And he has my back too. The Apostle Paul, one of the New Testament writers, will later say this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That is what Jesus is doing here. One writer argues that the essence of humility is not low self-esteem, but it's having power and choosing not to use it for one's own benefit. It's having power and choosing to use that power for the benefit of others instead. In this moment in the story, Jesus values his followers and their safety above his own. 
he uses his power for their good. And in that, he also sets an example for what those of us as his followers today are to do with the power and influence that we have. Don't see power and influence as a negative thing or an evil thing. Use it for the benefit of others. And that's what God calls each of us to here this morning even. So let me ask you, where do you have power? Where do you have influence? Where are you in a a position of authority maybe even over others or, or a position where you are able to bring change? What sort of means or or resources do you have? Use it for the benefit of others. That's the Jesus way. So Jesus prioritizes looking out for his followers here. But even more than that, it seems that, or should I say sorry, even as he does that, it seems that his disciples, or at least one of his disciples, this guy Simon Peter, doesn't really get it. And so in the next verse, we read, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the writer says the servant's name was Malchus. See, Peter grabs for a kind of authority and power that the world runs on, that of asserting dominance, of even using force, even violence if needed. Oddly enough, Peter here, whom, you know, we'd think that he's like one of the good guys. Like, he's on Jesus' side here, right? So he's, he's one of the good guys. Well, he's actually acting in a way that's surprisingly similar to those who've come to arrest Jesus. He, too, wants to grasp for control. And he's willing to harm someone, probably even trying to cut someone's head off here in order to get his way. Which I think shows us something. You know, we often tend to think that there are, like, good guys and bad guys. There's good people and there's evil people in our world. But Peter shows us that no matter whose team you're on, no matter where you're at on the political spectrum, no matter what causes you want to see advanced in the world, we all kind of want power and control. And even if we think we're we're working for the right cause, it's possible to do so in the wrong way. So how does Jesus respond to Peter's swing of the sword here? Well, we find in Luke's gospel, another one of the biographies of Jesus' life, that Jesus' first response is to heal this man's ear. Again, using his his power for the benefit of others. And I just find that fascinating, actually. Jesus, even in this moment, uses his power for the benefit of someone who who is his enemy. But here in this text, the gospel writer wants to emphasize something a little bit different in the story. The next verse says, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And a couple things we should see. First, Jesus rebukes Peter as Peter fails to understand that Jesus really is the one in charge of this whole situation. Peter probably thinks that this whole scene is an interruption in God's plan. Because in the Jewish conception at that time, the prevailing thought was that the Jewish Messiah would be a military hero who would conquer, not die. According to Jesus, though, this is no interruption at all. As the Messiah, Jesus will suffer 
He knows it. That's part of the deal. Which leads to the second and the key thing that we need to see. Jesus is going to voluntarily give up his life. We've already seen that as the one in charge, Jesus uses his power for the benefit of others. And never will he do that more clearly than when he willingly, when he voluntarily gives up his life on the cross. Listen to John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And later he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Why does Jesus die on the cross? Because he chose to. Because he chose to go there. And not only to take on physical death, but more, you know, Jesus speaks of the cup in this, in this passage in John 18, which is likely a symbol of God's judicial wrath against sin and evil. In the other gospel accounts, we see Jesus in absolute agony in the Garden of Gethsemane before his impending death. Why? Because this death will be unlike any other death. Jesus is not dying as a victim, nor is he dying as a heroic martyr. As Jesus goes to the cross, he takes the sin of the world and God's wrath against it upon himself. On the cross, we see Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he experiences God-forsakenness as he hangs there. He goes through hell so we can get heaven. He drinks the cup of judgment so that we can drink the cup of sweet fellowship with God. And no one, not even God the Father, and certainly not these people who've come to arrest Jesus or any of the religious leaders of his day forced Jesus into this. No, Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. And he did that because he loves you. He did that because he loves me. He did that because he wanted us forever. So let me ask, do you know that? Have you responded with a great yes to his love? Even today, there's an invitation to to place your trust in him and, and what he has done for you and to receive the new life that he offers. I'll invite the worship team to come back up at this time. Uh, And as they do, I'll just say a few words in conclusion. You know, you and I, I think, or at least if I can speak for myself, I often do desire to be in control. But we've seen this morning that Jesus really is in charge, and nothing comes as a surprise to him. Yes, he is the great I am who is in charge of the events that lead up to his death. And as the one in charge, he uses his power for the benefit of others. 
He even voluntarily lays down his life, the most remarkable voluntary act the world has ever seen. But not only is Jesus in charge in this little scene in the Gospel of John, and not only is he in charge of his own story and what will ultimately happen to him, he's also in charge of your story. He's also in charge of whatever is going on in your life. You know, for some of us, maybe some of us even here this morning, maybe we've been trying to, to be in control in our lives in a way that looks like putting ourselves at the center and, and not allowing Jesus to be the one who ultimately leads us. And if that's you, Jesus invites you to say, Jesus, be Lord of my life once again this morning. It's actually the thing that makes most sense to do because it's an act of putting in charge the one who is already in charge anyway. For others of us here this morning, maybe we're going through something really, really tough right now. Maybe we're going through a season of our lives or we're just in a moment right now where we're just finding it really hard to trust God. And if that's you, I can't tell you why you're going through what you're going through. But I can tell you that the Bible tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Know that Jesus is in charge, and there is nothing that can knock him off the throne. Because he is powerful. He is good. He is in charge And he has been oh so gracious to you and to me 